You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles. So next week is Valentine's Day, where we celebrate love. And for animals in the ocean, every day is Valentine's, it seems, or is it? Without sex or joining of gametes in the ocean, there would be no ocean life today. We talk a lot on the show about ocean conditions, threats, habitat, ecosystem integrity, uses of the ocean, and more. But what it really comes down to every day is the ability for animals to get it on. And sadly, humans are acting as birth control. Author Mara Hart took this topic on with her book, Sex in the Sea, Our Intimate Connection with Sex-Changing Fish, Romantic Lobsters, Kinky Squid, and Other Salty Erotica of the Deep. Mara is a creative writer and storyteller, a scientist, and works at the crossroads of research, creative communication, and strategy to build a sustainable future for people and the sea. She currently works as the research director for a nonprofit systems change incubator called The Future of Fish. When we come back, we'll dive into into the book and hear some of these salty tales. I'm so thrilled to welcome Mara Hart on the air by telephone. So, Mara, thank you for joining us. You're live on KWMR. Thanks so much for having me. How did you get into the creative urge to research this topic and write this book? <laughs> well, it, um, it occurred to me during graduate school, actually. I was looking for a way that I could write about all of the um, issues that were threatening ocean ecosystems. So... You know, oceans are faced with a lot of different problems these days, but most folks don't know about it um, or weren't uh, really aware of what's going on. And at the same time, people don't want to just hear the bad news stories, right? The doom and gloom isn't very motivating. So I was looking for a way that I could talk about the oceans that would inspire folks and motivate and also capture the interest of folks from all sorts of different backgrounds. So business community and um, the science community, the policy community, artists, you know, we need all different minds to help us figure out the solutions to how we're going to create sustainable seas. So I thought, um, you know, what's what's fun, what's interesting? And I was at a, at a cocktail party one night, and I was talking with some friends, and the long story short is <laughs> I wound up making a comment. Um, they were we were bemoaning how men and women 
don't understand one another. And I sort of offhand made this comment that, oh, you know, if only we could be like parrotfish. (laughs) And everybody sort of stopped and was like, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, you know, parrotfish uh, are sex changers. So they, an individual starts life as a male, and then as they grow, um, they change into, or sorry, they start as a female and then grow and change into a male. And so, you know, everybody was sitting there and they were still listening <laughs> and they wanted to know more. So I'm at this party and I wind up having this pretty lengthy discussion about sex change and how it affects um, fisheries management. Because if you imagine, you know, the rules allow us to take um, some of the biggest fish out and fishers target those biggest fish, those in a sex change population are all the males, right? So that's not very good for sustainability. So I have this this conversation and everybody's really engaged. And I went home that night and I thought, that's it, you know, sex. Everybody's curious <laughs> about sex. And the oceans have really weird sex. And sex is the heart of sustainability. You know, we can't have future generations of fish and clams and whales if we don't have successful sex in the sea. So that's kind of where it all started. I love the conversation change from science to sex, because it really all comes down to the science of sex to uh, talk about sustainability of these populations. It's great. It's so fun to read. I have to say, um, you are an amazing storyteller. I found myself laughing during this book, and um, it was really quite enjoyable. So I want to start talking about, you know, the ocean is three quarters of our Earth's planet. There are some species that are somewhat near each other in close proximity, and there's others that are pretty far away. What are some of the strategies for animals that are finding each other, thinking about whales, as, for example? Oh, sure. So it's true. It's, um, it's quite a challenge. If we thought it was hard to find a date here on land, imagine in the ocean where you have three dimensions, right? So it's not just that animals have to know who's in front or behind or right or left. They also have to know who's above and below them and um, be able to identify that there might be a mate in in all that space is it's really tricky but you mentioned whales and whales use sound so sound is really um, a wonderful way to communicate long distances in the ocean it travels through sound travels through water much more effectively than it does on land um, through the air so we know now um, through putting out hydrophones, which are listening stations in the sea, we're able to know that whales off of, you know, Cape Cod can communicate with whales off of Bermuda. Or for you folks out on the West Coast, you know, the entire West Coast of the U.S., imagine a whale can kind of, they can sing to one another. So it works really, really well. And one thing that's been really neat to see um, over the last several decades is the communication um, likely to find mates happening in blue whales. So blue whales were hit pretty hard during the era of whaling. Uh, some of their populations were reduced to over 90%. So they there were very few blue whales left in the sea. And at that point, so they were talking about the 1960s or so, the males, who are the ones who sing, they weren't really worried about being too selective with who they were mating with. You know, they just wanted to find another blue whale female, <laughs> hopefully, um, to to be able to feel the deal. So they would call as loud as possible, and that happened sort of at can imagine um, sort of a medium frequency. Um, so it was it was really. Um, a loud call, just kind of shouting out to try to figure out how they can 
how they can find um, another female out there in the ocean. So they're calling and calling. But over time, once whaling sort of um, came into play and they, uh, sorry, once the whaling ban came into play, they were able to start to recover their numbers. And scientists have noticed that in the past decade or so, the song of the blue whale has gotten deeper. So I can't do a very good Barry White, but imagine, you know, they're, they're lowering their tone, <laughs> right? <laughs> they're singing at this, this real deep bass. And the reason we think is that all across the animal kingdom, whether you are a koala or a human being, a deeper male sound is sexier for a female. And this goes back to sort of the evolutionary roots where we find that a bigger a bigger male can make a deeper voice. It's just the, the physics of having a larger sort of, in our case, a chest volume, right? So you can get a lower resonating voice. And bigger tended to be better in terms of finding a mate who could you know, defend your territory or defend your kids or whatever, secure resources. So females are attracted to these lower voices. So what we think is happening with these blue whales is that now they don't have to shout quite as far to find a mate because there's more blue whales in the ocean. They are now starting to, the males are starting to compete and advertise their their size and stature to the females who are around them by lowering their calls. And this means that they, the calls aren't traveling quite as far, but they're providing information um, to encourage that female to come a little closer and, and, and check them out. So it's a really neat um, example in this case of how we can see a shift in sex in the sea in terms of this deeper voice. Um, that's a positive sign uh, because we've stopped the whaling and, and their numbers are likely coming back. And other whales are also using sound to hear their mates as well, aren't they? Humpbacks and also sperm whales? Mm -hmm. I guess oh, all yeah. whales, right? Yeah, many, many whales are, are, we find that the males are the ones who tend to sing uh, these more complex songs. But in a lot of cases, yes, they're, they're all using different kinds of sound to communicate. And it's really how they navigate their world. And one of the consequences of that is nowadays the oceans are a lot louder than they used to be because of our ship traffic and oil and gas exploration and um, naval exercises, the sonar that the Navy uses. And all of that sound has really created uh, a cacophony <laughs> in the ocean that makes it much harder for these marine mammals to hear their fellow species. So it's kind of, uh, if you imagine um, trying to go to a party where you're maybe looking for a date or a singles bar and there's a ton of fog that, you know, kind of rolls in and we can't see as many individuals. That's what we're doing through muscling the sounds um, that these animals are creating in the ocean. So we're really could be restricting how far um, they can hear one another, which restricts which mates they're able to come into contact with and pursue for, for reproduction. So that's one of the negative consequences that's happened because these animals are so reliant on sound and because we've put so much sound, some folks call it sound pollution, into the oceans. So whales are some of the, well, they are the largest in the ocean and obviously mm -hmm. can hear and so they're, you know, able to communicate over large distances. But how about for some smaller species? I loved the part where you wrote about copepods, these ah. small little 
zooplankton, and we have copepods here on the West Coast. They're a real big part of the food web for nutrition for larger species. And I'm just, you know, part of me was, I want love for you to talk about it and explain to everybody, but also how do we know all this about copepods and this, <laughs> you know, my tiny little animal and how they reproduce? I'd love to hear about the yeah. research behind it, how we know these things. Yeah, sure. So I'm so glad you brought them up because I really tried in the book to um, not just focus on the big charismatic megafauna, right? Um, and copepods are, as you said, a really critical link in the ocean's food chain. For folks who don't know, they're a tiny crustacean. Um, many can be smaller than, you know, we can see with the eye to about the size of your thumbnail. And so trying to find a mate in the ocean when you're that small is a huge challenge. But then you add on to it that for some copepods, um, the males only live about a year. It makes the challenge even bigger, right? Because you've, you've got a time clock now ticking. And so one of the ways they do this um, was described at first uh, to me by a professor at Scripps Institution of Oceanography named Peter Franks. Uh, it was actually during my intro biological oceanography course. <laughs> and he, call, he refers to the copepods getting together in an area of the ocean that he calls copepod singles bars. <laughs> and these are areas of the ocean. So instead of thinking of the ocean like a giant pool, it's really much more like a layer cake where we have layers of water that have different densities um, due to either different temperatures, so warm and cold layers, or sometimes different salinities, so fresher or saltier layers. And where these layers stack on top of each other, there's there's a boundary. There's sort of a, a little bit of a thickness, and it can vary how thick it is, but a few centimeters. And it tends to be very still there because the water in the layer below and the water in the layer above doesn't tend to like to mix across that boundary unless you get, you know, strong wave actions or storms or things like that that really churn it up. So you have this very still uh, sort of strip in between um, these layers that is a very distinct um, sort of chemistry and temperature. And copepods are extremely sensitive to this. They, they can feel their environment very, very well. They're covered with these little hairs and they can really tell um, the difference in temperature or the difference in salinities. Um, and so they, as they move throughout the water column, they kind of move up and down at different depths, and then they'll hit one of these boundary layers, and they tend to stay there. Um, it's, a, it's a very distinct piece of real estate in the ocean. And by honing in on this sort of thin section, it means that many copepods can gather up in a small area, which increases their density. So that helps them to increase the chance that they're going to bump into one another. The other thing is that copepods leave trails. So when you're as small as a copepod, the ocean feels more like molasses than it does water. So they're actually kind of pushing through this thick fluid. And as they do that, they leave little wakes, little trails behind them. And these trails can be sensed by other copepods who come across them. So in wonderful experiments, you're asking how this is done. In wonderful experiments by a researcher um, named Jeanette Yen, she has looked at copepods in the lab under a microscope. And often she'll use, um, I believe it's sugar water that they're um, swimming through. 
and she has special filters um, to be able to see these trails. And you can see a male coming in, swimming along, and he'll cross a trail of a female, and he just immediately starts spinning, literally doing like somersaults, and this in a zigzag fashion, fashion until he can hone in on which direction and that uh, trail was left. So they can figure out by um, how strong the trail is. Some females also will scent their trails, so they leave a little pheromone in there. So it's like a little perfume corridor that the males can follow. And because this is in these boundary layers where there's very uh, little water movement, the trails tend to last a little longer. So that also helps the males be able to hone in on where the females are. So you've got a thin layer where the copepods can congregate, which ups their density and ups the chance that they'll bump into each other. And then you have the stillness in that area so that the trails they leave are left a little bit longer, which, again, increases the chance that a male can come across one and find his way to the female. And do they actually mate? Oh, yes, they do. They mate um, right on top of each other. It's um, actually an internal fertilization. The male will deposit... um, his sperm up inside the female into a little sort of receptacle area that she has. And they can have quite a a vigorous sort of uh, mating dance, if you will. Oftentimes the male will sort of jump onto the female and she, in some species, she will really shake quite violently It's like trying to ride a bucking bronco for him. (laughs) And we're not really sure why she does this. We don't know whether it's to test his strength, um, you know, and and make sure he's fit enough. And and therefore, it's a a way for her to select a a better mate or whether she really isn't interested and just does not want want the mating to happen. But um, if he holds on enough, they actually have... um, two different, a right and a left um, appendage that they can slip the sperm in. And and the female has two openings. So um, he has to align with the the side that is available. Because if she is mated previously, in some cases, um, one of her sides will be full already with a sperm pack and the male won't be able to get in there and have to use his other appendage. So there's there's a little bit of uh, (laughs) coordination that needs to happen. But it is a very intimate, you know, close contact reproductive act. That's amazing. This is Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Mara Hart, author of Sex in the Sea. And we're talking about copepod sex right now. You know, and copepods are crustaceans, and you write about another crustacean that is just fascinating and very seductive, the lobster. Uh, Very elaborate, um, kinky and romantic. And I was wondering if you could talk about the lobster. And I wanted to know, is it lobsters, East Coast lobsters and West Coast lobsters, the whole species as a whole? Just uh, as a side question yeah. there. <laughs> yes. So so to answer that first, so everybody can picture this, the studies that were done and the observations that we know of the, the ritual I'm about to describe were all done in Maine lobsters. Ah. So these are the, the big ones, the ones with the big claws um, that uh, we tend to, you know, put on the bib and dive into. Uh, so I've been asked, and I haven't yet found a good answer, but as far as I know, and I need to dig a little more, but as far as I know, we we really don't know if this translates for the other species. Um, It's possible, but we're not sure if they go through the same um, kind of of courtship. And part of that, because, as as I'll describe, the main lobsters 
have a, a really amazing capacity to be able to individually recognize one another. Wow. And that's really important. And that means not just recognizing a female of the same species, but the unique individual female. Um, and this is all done through scent. So again, through pheromones. So what happens um, in lobster, which is, it, it is, it's totally kinky and then it's really romantic. So they, they kind of mix it up. But the best time for lobsters to mate is right after the female has molted. And the reason for this is that when she molts, and her old shell comes off, she discards a sperm pouch or sperm receptacle, which is located on the underside of her tail. And is... So once she is molted, she has a fresh, new, empty sperm receptacle. For the female, she wants to fill this as soon as possible so that she can draw that sperm store. He wants to be the first one to mate with her so he can fill up that entire receptacle and not have to be worried that his sperm is mixing with another male sperm that maybe had mated with her previously. So for both of them, it's advantageous. The problem is for the female, right after she's molted, so she's extremely vulnerable, and the male is a total brute. <laughs> During reap re season, males are really battled out um, for territory, dens or shelters that they live in and mate in. And there anybody else who comes near, including females. So it's not just male on male. So she, a female is faced with this predicament where she has to present herself in her most vulnerable state to this really aggressive, large-clawed So what she does is she approaches his den and kind of goes up to the front of the den and in lobster right um, by their brains and there's two little sort of nozzles just below their eye stalk and they can squirt urine out of their nozzles. So she goes up to his den and she literally shoots pee into his doorstep and then runs out of there as fast as she can before he can retaliate. It sounds so, it sounds so teenager-like. <laughs> I know. It's, 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 yeah, I mean... A urine stream is not normally what we think of as being uh, <laughs> most seductive. But what it does is by about the third or fourth day when she's doing this, the male sort of starts to transform. It's like a love potion, and it takes this effect of really calming him down and turning him from an aggressive to a much more receptive state. And he'll wind up uh, welcoming her into his death, and she will live with him for another week. And they will go out and they'll hunt and they'll sort of just hang out side by side in this den. So it's a very powerful pee love potion. And once it's taken hold and she's been able to move in, um, they sort of just kind of, yeah, they sort of hang out for the week. And then right before she's about to molt, she circles around in front of him and he sort of puts his big claws out to the side and almost bows his head down. And she takes her big claw, and she will tap him on one shoulder and then the other. And, and the researcher who studied this, Dr. Giel Atema, called this knighting. And this behavior really does look like she is kind of you know, coming down and knighting him. And we think it's a signal to the male from the female that says, you know, this is all about to happen. Don't go anywhere. Right? <laughs> so she goes to the back of, of the den and proceeds to molt. And the male at this point actually goes to the back of the den and he sort of stands guard over her and he takes his 
little walking legs, um, which which is where in lobsters their their taste receptors are. So basically, they have taste buds on their feet, and so he rubs her with these le- his legs. So it's almost like he's licking her, <laughs> which is pretty interesting. Um, and he strokes her with his antenna, and it's all very gentle and sort of this sweet um, caressing going on. After she shed her her shell. As soon as it, it takes probably about a half an hour, and she she really she can't even stand up. She can't support her own weight, but she sort of signals to him that she's ready, and he comes around behind her, and again he braces himself, putting his big claws down into the sea floor and his tail down, and then he uses his walking legs to scoop her up. So if you imagine, she's sort of laying in the hammock of of his legs, and he rolls her over so that they're belly to belly. And in that missionary position, he then inserts his appendages into her and deposits the sperm into this sperm receptacle at the base of his t- of her tail. So the actual mating is a is a very traditional <laughs> stand position. He then lays her back down on the seafloor and walks away to the front of the den. She will take about three to four days for her new shell to harden, and she will stay at the back of the den for that time. And he basically guards the den, which provides her protection when she is um, this soft-bodied creature. As soon as she's ready and her shell is hard, she leaves, taking this sperm store with her, and she will go off and fertilize several batches of eggs with it over the next few months. He then will um, be doused with more urine from the next female who's been waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Because in in this species, they call it serial monogamy. So they're very faithful for that two-week period. And then it's like, okay, next one in. Um, Kind of a a rotating door. Amazing. And that's it. Yeah, it's it's pretty neat. And again, that was a lot of that work was done by um, Professor Tema. And it was done through experiments in the lab and, and observations out in the field. And I can see where knowledge like that is really important for understanding how to manage that as a fishery. Uh, lobster being such a popular seafood and having a better understanding of harvest times and uh, the amount that can be harvested. Has that been part of the fishery management plan in terms of just understanding reproduction for lobsters? Yeah, absolutely. So um, especially up in Maine, there's actually a it's a really impressive tradition that goes way, way back, I think, to the early 19th. 1900s, where um, any female, any gravid female with eggs um, was put back um, into the water. So there was no take at all on, on, on females that were, were carrying eggs, and they were notched. They would make a little notch in their tail so that other fishermen would know over time that this female was one that had been returned and they should return it too. Um, and, and some folks really credit that practice um, to, to the reason why the main lobster fishery is, is doing as well as it is today. One of, one of the other things, besides understanding just how, um, in, how often they, they reproduce and, and the way that they reproduce, one of the things that we learn is also the importance of that chemistry, right? So these lobsters, like I said, can identify individuals, and that individual recognition is critical for them to be able to have successful reproduction especially for the female, right? If she if she's not recognized, she's in trouble. Well, and and we know that the the receptors on the lobsters to be able to receive this this chemical pheromone signal and and respond to it and and understand it is is really sensitive. And some concern has been raised recently that with ocean acidification, 
which is a result of climate change, human-induced climate change, putting so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that gets absorbed by the oceans, that um, change in pH that's going on might affect either the ability of the receptors to work correctly or it could actually change the, the signal itself. So if you imagine this pheromone is floating through the water, um, it is reacting with the chemistry of the seawater as well. And it might be that it that these signals just get a bit scrambled and aren't as clear. We don't know, um, but it's a concern because it's such a fine-tuned chemistry-based system for that communication. Thanks for that elaborate description of both of those and the changes that we might be experiencing with ocean acidification. I know there's many more stories about that with potential changes in um, many species um, communicating with each other or smelling each other. We need to take a a short break, so I'm just going to put you on hold, and I'd love to come back and keep talking. Um, We're on Ocean Currents here, and my guest is Mara Hart, author of Sex in the Sea. So, Mara, please stay on the line. We'll be right back. You bet. on KWMR Radio, Community Radio for West Marin. And here today on the show, we're talking about Sex in the Sea with author Mara Hart. She is has written this fantastic book, Sex in the Sea, Our Intimate Connection with Sex-Changing Fish, Romantic Lobsters, Kinky Squid, and Other Salty Erotica of the Deep. And we're hearing some great stories here. So, Mara, welcome back. Thanks for staying with us. You're live on the air. Thank you. I love the music you're playing. I know. It's so fun. Well, I have to say I was very inspired because I forgot to mention to listeners, but Mara provides a playlist for each chapter of this book. And I love it. There's the Sex Sea soundtrack, and there's all these songs <laughs> listed. It was just awesome. So thank you for that inspiration. I thought, ah, i got to play some extra music during this show. So I wanted to talk a little bit about sex change in the sea because, you know, I used to think it was just a couple animals. And then obviously after reading your book, it's so much more common, more as a more common strategy. And I'm kind of curious why. And, you know, from the slipper shell story to oysters um, and some of the fish in the sea, it's just a fascinating thing. And I'm just kind of curious as to to why. Yeah, it's a great question because it it takes a lot of energy, right, to to start as one sex and then be able to sort of transition all your equipment to be the other sex. It's not, not an easy or, or, or cheap in terms of energy um, thing to do. It's all about maximizing reproductive output, right? So it's all about making sure that you are trying to put out as many offspring as possible. And in many invertebrates, so like you said, oysters and shrimp and many fish species, they are able to, different species are able to take advantage of the ability to sex change um, in ways that we don't see in mammals, for example. But this, the type of sex change that they do and the reason for doing it depends on the strategy of the species. So, for example, if we look at a species like parrotfish, as I mentioned at the beginning um, of, of our story, they transition from female to male. And the reason for this is that parrotfish, uh, some species keep harems. So you need to be a dominant male who's big enough and tough enough to defend either a territory where the females want to hang out or 
just to be able to ward off other males from coming into into your region where where your females are. So that that takes some size and girth. So if you imagine if they could not sex change, it would mean that fish born as males would have to wait quite a long time before they were able to reproduce um, in order to grow big enough that they would be able to defend this harem. So there's a lot of lost uh, opportunity there because they might be sexually mature, but just not big enough. Instead, because they're sex changers, they're all born as females. And as a small female, they're still able to reproduce with the big males. And then once they are big enough, to either challenge their their male <laughs> or to go off and secure their own harem, then they transition to that male uh, sex. So it allows them to reproduce much more in terms of uh, over time, much more than they would if they they couldn't. And we see you know a great contrast is if you think about on your on the coast there in California right now is prime elephant seal mating time. Actually, they, they tend to mate right on Valentine's Day. These are the northern elephant seals. And they don't sex change. And what we see is that very, very few males are able to reproduce because these males also control harems of female. And the big males have been battling for the past two months to defend that territory and the right of access to these females. And so less than, I think it's less than like 1% or 2% of males ever get to mate at all in that species because of, of the need to be so big and burly, whereas fish kind of get around it. The parrotfish get around that by just going through some sex change. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great solution for that reason. Um, the sex change that works the other direction, like we see, say, in clownfish, where, you, where the individuals are born as males and transition into large females, there are several reasons for this, but one of them is that unlike mammals where a female is born with all the eggs she will ever have, so uh, as humans, we, are, we females are born with the total maximum number of eggs we have, and that number goes down over our lifetime. In fish, that's not the case. As long as a fish is healthy, a female who grows bigger can hold and manufacture more eggs, and this can be exponential. So a fish that doubles in size can sometimes carry 10 times more eggs. And we call these big females boffs. They're the big, old, fat, fecund female fish boffs. And they're really important for the reproductive um, success of the population. And in sex-changing fish, they can take advantage of this in the sense that a small male has enough sperm to fertilize a lot of eggs you know, as many eggs as a, as a female can carry, um, even a big female. But a big, fe- but a big male might not be able, might have too much sperm for a smaller female. Mm. You know, so it gets a little complicated. But if you, it works much better, especially for fish that pair up, for that pair can maximize its offspring by having the biggest individual be the female because then she can make a lot of eggs and the smaller male is still able to produce enough sperm to fertilize all those eggs. So I understand. Yeah, it makes <laughs> sense. And it's, it's interesting how it goes both ways there. Um, I understand Pixar mm-hmm. got it all wrong with Finding Nemo and Nemo's dad should have really had a different name by the time it's true his uh, little Nemo hatched out there. (laughs) 
It's really true. So, again, like I said, with clownfish, sex change works with uh, male transitions into a female. And so in Nemo, when when his mom got eaten by that barracuda, uh, his dad would have been the largest fish left in the anemone. So his dad would have actually transitioned to his mom, and Nemo would have wound up mating with his father turned mother so it's, uh, it's you can see why disney took some uh, creative license there in order to keep things uh g-rated i think yeah got it now the, the, slip, <laughs> the slipper shells though the stacking thing i found that really fascinating so you were talking about how they stack on top of each other and each time one lands on top of them like they change sex when they land on a slipper shell and then when another slipper shell lands on top of them they change sex again right is that how it works yeah it's, so this is what's happening. We see this in a couple of, of different um, animals. It's, it's really fascinating. So the first slipper, so slipper shells, um, they're, they're pretty sedentary. So they attach onto a hard substrate on the bottom, a rock or a pier piling or something like that. And then they tend to stay there. They don't move very much. Uh, they really kind of glue, glue down. Um, they use their foot to do that. And so the first slipper shell to arrive to a new area will transition to be female. Um, they sort of start off as this uh, juvenile with a little bit of a male kind of tendency. And the first ones, though, to arrive will sort of blow right through that male stage and go immediately into female and start sending out pheromones to attract other slipper shells. Those slipper shell larvae will come in and land on her back onto the shell. And the, the, they think through some of the chemicals that the female's putting out, it sort of stunts the, the transition of these new arrivals so that they get stuck in the male stage, basically. They don't continue on to become females. They stay males. And they have a very long penis that they can actually reach out from under their shell and reach down and up and under the female who's on the bottom to inseminate her and fertilize her eggs. And so you wind up with this tower where there's a big female on bottom and then there's more and more and more of these stacked males. And the ones that are farther up, you know, if you're the fifth or sixth male on top, you've got a really long distance to be able to reach that female, right? (laughs) So what happens is as the tower grows, at some point the males are just too far to reach the female. At that point, the second, the, the second shell, the second uh, snail, who's the, the first male, it's hard to follow with words, but yeah. really, the first male transitions to female. So then the, the tower doesn't have to reach quite as far, right? Because now they've got two females on top, stacked on top, and then the males go above. So it's this really cool system where there's sort of, adjusting which sex and who's changing sex to make sure that sort of as a a whole, the group can continue to fertilize eggs and pump out as many offspring as possible. It's wild. It's so amazing. Yeah. (laughs) It's really, really neat. Um, Let's talk about different strategies. So we're, you know, there's a lot of species that just do a lot of spawning and hope their larvae meet each other in the water column. And there's uh, mobile invertebrates, that do this. There are sessile invertebrates that do this and fishes and mm-hmm. uh, fish aggregations, horseshoe crabs. 
Um, I think you refer this to yeah. as oceanic orgies. <laughs> How? <laughs> yep. What, what's your favorite one to talk about in terms of this, um, the mass spawning events and the timing of them? And mm. It's always a toss-up, um, probably a toss-up between, like, the Nassau grouper and groupers in general or corals. Uh, so we could do a mobile example and then a yeah, let's mobile do both. animal if you'd like. Yeah? Okay. So what I love about the Nassau grouper, so, again, all of these animals, um, unlike whales and sharks um, and the copepods even, where the fertilization happens inside the female, so sperm is deposited into the female and the egg is fertilized inside her body, for many, many species of marine life, the eggs and sperm are released into the water, like you said. So it's external fertilization. So this is where I say sex is like an out-of-body experience, right? <laughs> and the challenge there, if you imagine, you know, oceans are, are pretty dynamic spaces, and you have to make sure that the eggs and sperm are going to collide and meet. And currents and things can make that very difficult, as well as distance. So what I love about the Nassau grouper is, it's a, a wonderful example of how fish come together to maximize the chance of fertilization and, and successful reproduction. So Nassau grouper are beautiful sort of camouflage-colored fish that live on Caribbean reefs. They're currently endangered. Um, there are, they have been overfished quite a lot, and it relates to their reproductive strategy, so we'll get to that. But they're also very territorial, very aggressive fish. So they live by themselves on the reef except for right now, actually. So the full moons of January and February, these fish, um, they change their coloration. So they sort of don this um, dark back and light bottom so that it's a, it's a really distinct coloration um, compared to their normal uh, camo pattern. And they swim out to the edge of the reef, sort of in this camo, this, this new bicolor um, outfit, and they wait and watch for other NASA groupers who are swimming down the reef, and they join in. And so it, they think that this change in coloration, first of all, is a signal to the other fish that, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm joining the party, I'm friendly, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, attack you. <laughs> um, we're all in this together. So they have this wonderful coloration change, and then they form these caravans, basically, where all the adult fish from around the reef leave their territories and stream together, and they all hone in to one specific spot on the reef. And in the Cayman Islands, which is where the largest aggregation still occurs, um, they go to the southern tip of one of the islands. And it's timed perfectly with the full moon, so they're arriving a few days um, right in sync with the full moon to a few days after. And they hang out in this giant school that it masses. And researchers uh, who have tagged these fish put little um, pingers in them that, that give off a signal, a sound signal. And they put hydrophones, again, listening stations, all around the island. So they've actually been able to map where these adults are moving pretty exactly. And the researchers who are doing this, it's part of the Grouper Moon Project, which is um, jointly run by a professor named Bryce Simmons at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, as well as the um, reef.org. So it's a really, really neat project, and they've been able to monitor where these fish go. And they found that literally every fish from the island goes to this one spot. 
So it is the entire breeding population of the island in this one tight, tiny area of ocean. What that does is it allows all of these fish to sort of um, get together and get in sync. And come dawn, um, right right after the um, – oh, sorry, not dawn, sunset. <laughs> I'm getting my species mixed up. Cooper do it around sunset. So as the light dims, they tend to get really excited, and they will start to go off into these sort of group bursts. And the female will lead the charge. She sort of rockets up from the bottom. They kind of hang around the bottom of the seafloor. And then she rockets up into the water column. And the males will sort of follow behind her. And she does this big arc. And as she reaches the top of her arc, she lets loose this cloud of milky white eggs. And then the males come in and poof, off all of their sperm. So it looks like these erupting geysers or mini volcanoes that are shooting <laughs> off out of this dense pack of thousands and thousands of fish. And they repeat this for, you know, I think up to about an hour. And then sort of it gets dark, quiet down, and then they just sort of hang out until until the next sunset. So it's a really cool, um, amazingly beautiful thing to watch and um, a very tight synchronization that helps make sure that the sperm are being released right into these clouds of eggs so that the likelihood that the sperm are going to find and connect with eggs is, is increased. The challenge is that the predictability uh, that these fish use in order to time the aggregations and, and to know where to go is also something that fishers have used to fish the fish, mm -hmm. right? So you have all of these large adults in one place. They're normally scattered and hard to find on a reef. But at this one time of year, they're all together. It makes for really easy fishing. And over the years, we have sequentially wiped out spawning aggregation after spawning aggregation. Uh, it's not just Nassau groupers, obviously, who do this, right? Many species of groupers do it. Snappers do it. And it really um, has led to some serious problems in terms of management because fishers, it, it's really hard to tell that you are making as big of an impact as you are because there are so many fish in this one dense location that it seems like you could fish half of them out and they'd be fine. It seems like there's still a lot of fish left, um, but that's not the case. Um, and we've seen these spawning collapse spawning collapses. I'm sorry to interrupt because we're getting close yeah. to the top of the hour. We have to wrap it up in just a few minutes. So I don't think we're going to be able to get to the coral spawning, but I wanted to ask, <laughs> <laughs> your stories are so great, and I really want people to be able to read more, and I wanted you to share your, your personal blog that you keep as well as the, the uh, website for the future of fish that you work for so people can dive in and learn a lot more because your resources online are fantastic. So would you mind sharing those? Sure. So for more on Sex in the Sea, you can just go to sexinthesea.org. And there I have resources for folks who are interested in um, learning more. I have a blog. I also have for anyone who's a science teacher or um, professor out there, uh, ways in which you can use Sex in the Sea in the classroom, um, different topics and, and themes that are covered in the book. So I would love for folks to check it out. And you can get in touch with me through the website as well if you have any questions. And then for those who are interested in more about Future of Fish and our work to help develop fisheries into uh, sustainable, long-lasting resources for people and the sea, go to futureoffish.org and check out some of the work we're doing there. 
Great. Mara, thank you so much. I'm sorry to cut you off while you're getting ready to talk no, about your favorite species. I, I, I tend to wax on. Okay, <laughs> it's, okay. Go read about corals. It's great. And I just really want to thank you so much for writing such a wonderful book. I, as an ocean educator, I find myself taking a lot of notes of some really great things that you're talking about that I'll be sure to use as I continue on with education. So thank you so much. And thanks for coming on to Ocean Currents today. Well, thanks so much for having me, and, and thanks for all you do to share all these wonderful stories of the sea with such a wide audience. It's really, really fantastic. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. Thanks. Take care. We are just at the top of the hour and about to end the show, and it's such a shame because there's so many more stories that Mara has, and I just can't even tell you. It's super funny. You have to read the book, Sex and the Sea. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, 1 to 2 p.m. Um, we have a podcast. You can go to iTunes to get that for 10 years of programs at this point. And they're also all archived at the cordellbank.noaa.gov website, as well as transcripts. And Ocean Currents has a Twitter feed. You can follow along at OceanKWMR to get more information about this program. And I'll be sharing supporting links that have, of information that were shared on the program today out there as well. Um, I love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, please email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov, or you can tweet at OceanKWMR, and I'll get it there as well. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. Enjoy the bay, water, ocean, whatever body of water you can get into safely. Please be careful with the large waves and big swells on the beaches out here in Point Reyes. And if you haven't had a chance to go check out those elephant seals, this is a great time to do it, to witness some of this exciting behavior as we approach Valentine's Day. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin, KWMR. Have a great afternoon.